This episode of the Braving Business Podcast is sponsored by, well, me. I'm PJ Benoit, and I've been in the domestic and international logistics space for over 30 years. If you need any assistance with transportation or logistics, my team and I will jump at the chance to help. Whether it be parcel shipments, e-commerce, pallets and freight, full truckload, international air and ocean, imports, exports, warehousing and distribution, or really anything under the logistics umbrella, we got you covered. For more details, please go to shipwithpj.com. That's shipwithpj.com. Reach out to me there. Mention you found me on this podcast for a special surprise. And one last quick thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please stay on after the show to learn more about the Braving Business Podcast and other great episodes for you to discover. And now, let's get the show started. Well, hello there. Hello there, PJ. How are you, sir? I am fan-freaking-tastic. How are you? I am well. I am I am well. It's uh, you know, it's Friday. That's always always, always a good wonderful, thing. Wonderful. Yeah. Um both the teams I follow in football are two and up. Um how are the Bears doing, by mm, the way? Mm, mm. You like to you like to stab deep, don't you? You like you want to start out and just trample me and then we hopefully build me up by the end of the episode. Exactly. You know what? This is about perseverance and being a Chicago Bears fan. Is entirely about perseverance, is it not, PJ? There's, there's nothing like a good friend to kick you in the teeth when you're down. Thank you so That's much, right. Tom. You know, they were in Tampa Bay uh, just last week. Uh, I, it was, I how did that game end? Uh, buddy, do you know? When, who won that game? Buddy doesn't care. He was watching the Eagles trounce whoever they played against. So uh, th- that's good, though, right? The Eagles are doing great. Well, they, they barely won. Uh, <laughs> they they had a good game, but they, uh, they only won by a few points in, at the end of the game there, so... I wish they, they PJ, played Minnesota. You know what, PJ, you know what that's called when you win by only a few points? Uh, no, we don't, actually. It's called winning. I know. Just I know, winning. I know. Okay. I know. I, know. I, knew yeah. I knew where you're going, man. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there one day, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Well, you know what? You, you had that era, the Jim McMahon era. Uh, remember Jim McMahon? Man. Dude, was that like won. the last good Chicago Bears team that, yeah, you know? Yeah, basically. Well, no, we went to wow. the Super Bowl no. with Rex Grossman. Yeah. That's right. Rex Grossman, University of Florida product. I don't know if it's called a product nice. or he's a product product. Oh. In other words, like there are better products. But anyway, there are. There are. And then <laughs> he went to my Washington, then Redskins, now Commanders, who are also, for the record, 2-0. Mm. Uh, and he was uh, not so good. Not so good. Yeah, he was never, never all that great. So it's amazing we went that far. Thanks for the old Lovey Smith de- defense. But anyway, we're waxing. Lovey Smith, you know, he went to Tampa Bay after that, and uh, and uh, did okay for a minute. And then, uh, anyway, enough of that. Let's introduce <laughs> our guest and uh, talk business. The, the Braving Business Podcast, sports side. Yes. Um, well, you know what, buddy? Very happy to have you on the show today. Um, very thrilled to introduce you because you know, first of all, you sound maybe like a Geo Joe guy. I think you sound like a space cowboy out of a science fiction movie, right? Like, Hey, when you get to that outpost, look up buddy Jericho, he's going to help you out. I mean, it's just, it's a fantastic name. It sounds like a pseudo name, doesn't it? It, it sounds like, you know, like a, a name they'd give a spy and it just so happens, buddy did work at the national intelligence agency. So buddy, is that your real name? Are you really well, buddy Jericho? Tell us the truth. <laughs> I am buddy Jericho, but actually my, my real first name is Harry. Uh, and going back eight generations, 
we've all, I've, you know, I'm Harry Jericho, the A, but uh, every Harry Jericho has been given the nickname Buddy. And it's kind of funny growing up in Philadelphia, I go to the bar with my dad. That was kind of just something you did in the neighborhood I grew up. And as a kid, I thought I was the most famous Go to the kid bar the with your dad as a kid. Love it. Okay. That's yeah, Philadelphia you know, you for shuffle, you right there. Play shuffleboard, throw darts. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody in the bar would always say, hey, little buddy, come here. And so I thought I was the most popular kid in the city. And so I found out that, uh, you know, they basically say that to every little kid. So Aww, that's, that's awesome. awesome. Well, PJ, PJ, complete your introduction. I'm sorry yes. I interrupted you. No, there. no, no, that's fine. That's fine. So after, you know, buddy grew up in bars, throwing darts, throwing punches. And then afterwards, uh, he went to the U.S. Army. After the U.S. Army, he became an operations intelligence officer with the Defense Intelligence Agency before turning into an entrepreneur. But not just any entrepreneur, Buddy founded and was a CEO of Echo Analytics, which he sold to defense contractor Quiet Professionals Company, which um, just sounds, I don't know, sounds very spyish. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, it, does, yeah. it is a little scary. Quiet Professionals. You know where I work? <laughs> I work with the Quiet Professionals. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds that's, badass. <laughs> All right, sorry, go on. Anyway, Echo Analytics delivers a range of highly reliable open source intelligence training, technology, and products through one single platform, primarily to federal agencies and local law enforcement. While he was launching and running Echo Analytics, Buddy also launched Skull Games, a 501c nonprofit that uses open source intelligence to identify victims of sexual exploitation, the predators abusing them, and other persons of interest by creating leads that enable law enforcement to interrupt the cycle of abuse and restore survivors of trauma to a life of hope, healing, and freedom, which is amazing. I can't wait to get into that. Uh, it's now in its ninth iteration. Skull Games has become an impactful tool in the arsenal used by law enforcement to help victims catch sex trafficking predators. So it's, it's nuts. It's, a way, it's, it's amazing. Um, his entrepreneurial spirit, Streak is very much intact. After selling Echo Analytics, uh, he launched a new company, Indago. Is that right? Indigo? Indigo? That's right. Indago. 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 Okay. Uh, a cloud My name is Indago Montoya. Yeah, you have killed me. No, close. no, no. Okay, go on. You, you yeah. killed my father. Um, a yeah. cloud-based intelligence report building platform, which offers intelligence analysts and business analysts tools to analyze massive amounts of data quickly and efficiently. So he's all about intelligence. This is why he and I never cross paths. He's a very intelligent guy. As that's well, what I was going to say. We'll that's, find. that's why. <laughs> uh, buddy, it is a pleasure to have you on the on our Braving Business Podcast. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, PJ. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you guys. When Tal reached out to me and told me he was starting a podcast and uh, and then offered me to come on the podcast, I was uh, I was extremely honored. So I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Uh, well, and actually, to be to be perfectly honest, he. This is his podcast. I'm just like, I'm playing around. I'm having yeah, fun yeah, yeah. PJ, PJ likes to play small. <laughs> PJ likes to pretend that he's a small cog in a big machine, but he is the machine. Uh, <laughs> you know, people do hear the, the um, advertisement on the front end of this, and they know that uh, you are the one bringing them braving business. So oh, let us, on. let us, come on, come on. let us, uh, by the way, if you do need anything shipped, where would you go, PJ? Tell us. Oh, come on. They already heard it. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, Buddy, uh, it's great to see you again. Um, you and I uh, met um, a few years back. I was uh, doing some consulting uh, and uh, was uh, involved in, in in what you were trying to do with Echo Analytics. Uh, you have a fascinating story. Um, you, before becoming a soldier, you were a car mechanic. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. 
you turned an intelligence officer, you've turned to be an entrepreneur. And then in addition to that, you moonlight as the savior for people who've been victimized by sex trafficking. And you've also become the worst nightmare of sex traffickers. You don't just have an action here name. You sort of live the life of one. Um, tell our listeners about yourself. How did you find yourself on this, this astonishing journey that's been yeah. your life? Yeah, and just to, just to be clear um, on Skull Games, I, I didn't start that myself. That was a team effort, uh, but it, it was a small group of us, and uh, and so I am still a part of Skull Games. But uh, I, I wasn't the sole builder of that. Just to be clear, there was there was none of us are the sole builders kind of, of anything, together. right? I mean, that's yeah, it's, a, it's a fair point. We've had other guests that have pointed that out. Fair enough, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we co-found, we built together. Um, uh, acknowledged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And yeah. yeah. So I, uh, you know, I had no intention of being where I am in life today. I, uh, when, when I was in high school I, and I wasn't a very good student, I was, uh, I was always a visual learner. Uh, I'm a product of Philadelphia public schools. And, um, so I, I never did well when people just told me things I had to see them and I didn't realize that. And so I went in the army. And so at 18, uh, I was, I went to, I actually played a year of uh, soccer in college. And uh, I wasn't any better in college than I was in high school as a student. So I realized I had to do something. And I took this job as a mechanic and I really enjoyed it. But, you know, I found myself one day looking around the, the shop and I realized there's some, you know, 40, 50 year old guys in the shop that I really don't want to be in 40 or 50 years. Uh, not, not anything bad. I just didn't want to have that. You know, I was never a, a routine sort of person. I wasn't a nine to five guy. And I kind of knew that about myself at a young age. And so um, I went home and I, I explained that to my mom. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not a great student. I'm okay at soccer. And I don't really have a passion for being a mechanic. So, uh, you know, what are my options? And the army, the army came up or service came up as one of the options. And so I went down and I took the test to join the army. Um, and I did really, really well in the test. And so I, uh, I joined the army and I joined the army actually before 9-11. And, uh, one of the things my recruiter told me is I could go to Germany as my first assignment. And I always wanted to travel. So I thought this is a great opportunity. I'm going to get paid to learn something new and I get to travel and it's all on the government's dime. And so, so I joined the army, I went to Germany and uh, I get to Germany within three months of being in Germany, they deploy me to Bosnia. And that was a really interesting experience for me. Um, one to learn about different cultures and the interesting thing about Bosnia is my job in Bosnia was to protect Muslims from the Christians. And you can imagine fast forward. So was that during the Bosnian Serb um, conflict? Right. Uh, That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, while I was there, they stuck me on this, what they called a FOB, a forward operating base. And on this FOB, it was just a handful of people. Um, and it was very boring. We, we just basically pulled security to protect the radio towers. Uh, and it was a propaganda counter information operations uh, mission, and so I run into this lady who was walking her uh, who was walking her goats every day, and I struck up a conversation with her. I'm a pretty outgoing person. I I uh, I, I think I'm probably more extroverted than introverted. And come to find out, they have all these soccer stadiums in the area that have been blown up during the war, and her son plays soccer. And so uh, so I said to her, I said, I'd love to kick the ball around with your son. Um, that led to me playing soccer with their son, which led to me finding a bunch of other kids in the area. So I, I basically launched this soccer league in what they called the zone of separation and uh, turned into kind of a big thing. But And, and the where, lesson for our audience there is 
just talk to people with goats. That's I think we start there <laughs> exactly right. and build from there. Okay. Just yeah. want to make sure our audience did not miss that. <laughs> no, and and it was cool because uh, you know, that was my first introduction to human intelligence. And that wasn't my intention. But just by being me and, and getting along with this person and building this league, uh, by the time I was done, I think we had like 16 soccer teams playing in this league. Oh. The community started rebuilding these stadiums. We had governors from these districts coming to these games. And so unintentionally, what it did is it provided an opportunity for, you know, coalition forces, for the American forces to begin building relationships with the locals. Um, but the cool thing for me is this was the first time I was really exposed to a culture outside of ours here in America. Sure. Um, and so a lot of lessons learned there just uh, you know, they, the way they rationalized, the way they thought about things, the way they approached things, their feelings were very, very similar to ours here in America. And so I started to realize, you know, what I read in books and what I got in briefs was not really representative of who these people actually were. They were a lot like me, and I had a lot more in common with them than differences. And so uh, I finished that tour. I left Bosnia. The soccer, t- the soccer uh, league is was well intact. I'm still blown away by the fact that I played soccer against these guys that were in their fifties that could chain smoke during the game and still outrun me <laughs> and drink rakia on the sidelines. And, uh, the most fit people I've ever in be- more, better in better shape. I was at 21 and these guys were in their fifties and very good at soccer, by the way, very, very good at soccer. Uh, and so I, I left that assignment. I come back to the States. I get assigned uh, to the one Oh first airborne division. I'm an Intel guy, by the way, um, there. And then nine 11 happens. And, um, 9-11 obviously changed for a lot of people. So I wasn't one of the folks that joined the army because of 9-11. I was already in the army. But uh, while I was at Fort Campbell, I got, you know, I got a notification that I was being assigned to a new unit. I thought for sure they were sending me to be a recruiter because um, that's typically what you get sent to D.C. or somewhere else to do halfway through your assignment. So I told the army I wasn't going to do it. I said, no, I'm getting out. I'm going to be a cop in Philadelphia. I actually went and took the police test to become a cop. And then my branch manager in the army called me and said, buddy, it's not a recruitment assignment, It's it's, uh, but we can't tell you what it's going to be, but I, I really think you should look into this job. And so that got me into the world of human intelligence. It got me into the world of special operations. And so I, I transitioned to a new position up in the DC area. And a few months later, I was deployed to, to Iraq. Um, I spent, uh, I think I did 14 deployments to Iraq over the next 12 years. Um, which you can imagine was tough on my family. One, four, 14 deployments. Yeah, 14 oh. deployments. Now, now, just oh. to be to be fair, these these weren't like one year deployments. These were uh, three and four month deployments, but they were back to back, and uh, that got me into the world of human intelligence. And uh, so, a lot of the skills I learned as a kid growing up in the streets of Philadelphia, a lot of the skills I learned in Bosnia, uh, really, really helped me. In my uh, in my journey to becoming a human intelligence officer, and I had and by the way, I didn't plan for any of this. It's kind of interesting how things just started to fall into place, um, and 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 I moved into that world. So I left the army. I became a government employee, and uh, you know did those deployments, and then in 2012, I was kind of spent. Uh, I was very tired. The army, you know, the wars were starting to die down. We were pulling out of Iraq. And I was actually having dinner with my wife and my daughter had turned 10. Um, this was in 2012. She turned 10 years old. And she's telling all these stories at the dinner table. And I'm not remembering half of the stories. And so I told my wife, I said, 
you know, I, I don't know what she's talking about half of these stories. And she said, you know, you've, you've only been home for two Christmases. And I, I think you've missed all but like three birthdays in 10 years. And so I realized, you know, I, I can't stay on this path. I've got to find something else. And at the time, the government wanted to send me to another country um, in Southeast Asia to continue my work with them. And uh, there, there was no way I was getting my wife and three little girls to move to Southeast Asia to the country they wanted to send me to. And I was only 37 years old. So I decided, you know what? I, I want to do something different. I don't want to just be a defense contractor the rest of my life. And, and I always wanted to take a shot at business because I grew up a lot around a lot of entrepreneurs in Philadelphia, you know, um, that went off and started their own little small businesses. Nothing in the tech space. These are like corner bars or, you know, uh, newspaper stands or selling pretzels on the highway. But, you know, very entrepreneurial spirit in terms of, of, of getting into business. And so as I look First, back, I, my- I got to say, buddy, I'm sorry to interrupt you. One really yeah. interesting thing you said that I think uh, just reinforces that people who serve are just a different breed. Mm. You said, I was exhausted. So I decided to become an entrepreneur. <laughs> I mean, think about it. <laughs> think about it. For, yeah. for, for, for a lot of the people in the audience who've not served, and I have not served, I'm very uh, blessed to have a, a daughter that's serving uh, in the Navy now. Um, but uh, for a lot of people, uh, being an entrepreneur would be something to need rest from. Uh, and for you, given what you were doing for your country, which we appreciate greatly. Thank you. Thank uh, you. That was a respite. So that says something. <laughs> well, well something I will that. tell you at the time, I had no idea what I was getting into and being an entrepreneur. So <laughs> I bet <laughs> you're right. It, it, being an entrepreneur is absolutely exhausting as well, but, but it's a different type of exhaustion, right? Sure. There's, there's the exhaustion of traveling, um, and, you know, just, uh, you know, going to bed at night, not knowing if you're going to wake up being out on missions where you're chasing some of the worst of the worst in the world. And that was part of my job was essentially chasing some of the most wanted people on the planet at the time. Uh, so there's a lot of exhaustion that comes with that. You know, being an entrepreneur is exhausting as well, but it's, it's sort of a different uh, type of exhaustion, I think. Um, uh, for sure. But like Look, I, said, you know, I, I mean, all kidding aside, I, I, I absolutely mean it when I say the people that serve are, are a different breed. I mean, there is, there is a, they're, they're, they're made, they're, they're just a different breed. And I mean that with the, the utmost respect and admiration. Oh, I appreciate that. And, yeah. I, and I agree with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so I decided, you know, I'm going to take a shot at business. I, I had no idea what I was doing, but I looked back and I said, well, you know, there's nothing I've done in my life up until this point that I've completely failed at. There, there's also nothing I've done in my life that I've done completely, you know, better than anybody else either. But I figured at 37 years old, it's worth a shot. Let me get into business. And Something a lot of people don't understand that I, I sort of realized at the time was I always envied those, you know, the guys in their 20s or the gals in their 20s that get out and start these businesses. And I thought, you know, for me to start a business, I'm 37 years old. I've got these very unique skill sets. I've got, you know, the government's probably spent millions of dollars training me to do what I did. And if I go into business and I completely fail, I still can go be a defense contractor. I can still go back to the government. So I had a plan B and a plan C, and in some cases, a plan D. And so actually jumping into the world of entrepreneurship for veterans and for me at the time was not nearly as risky as I think it sounds on the surface. And one of the other things I learned when I jumped into the entrepreneurial world, which fascinated me and really kind of drives my passion today, one of my passions, is that after World War II, and I understand there's a lot of variables here, so it's not a you know a black and white, one for one thing. But after World War II, over 50 5% of small businesses in America were owned by veterans. And in, in today's world, that number is less than 2%. Wow. 
And so in my brain, I was just like, what has changed so much that veterans are so uh, hesitant? Well, there's no draft for one thing. So so a lot more people are veterans, but PJ, PJ, go ahead. I I see you're jumping in with your first question. Go. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating, right? Like this, this whole story, first of all, thank you for your service, you know, to echo Tal. Uh, It's fantastic. Um, I was going to say though, that, that, you know, obviously everything that I'm hearing is that you have this huge heart, right? You're, you're coming in with, with a lot of empathy and a lot of curiosity about different cultures and different people that you're working with. Um, and you know, this, your, your journey into entrepreneurship obviously is, is a new step for you, but you're using all this background that you have of law enforcement and, and, and the intelligence for that. Um, but you also are getting into uh, a realm that people hear about, but we don't, you know, the everyday American doesn't see or hopefully doesn't see, which is all this sex trafficking. Like, how did you get into that? Like, what what took you there? That's a great question. And so while I was still in the government, you know, when, when you're hunting terrorists or you're hunting bad guys, inevitably you're going to come across uh, things outside, you know, it's, it's not just that guys put on suicide vests and go blow mosques up or blow churches up. Uh, they've got to fund their operations. And so one of the ways in which they fund their operations is through, you know, sex trafficking. Um, and so a lot of the, I shouldn't say a lot, but a, a good majority of the operations I was involved in, uh, you know, it was rescuing kids that had been kidnapped or, or rescuing girls that were being used as sex slaves to fund the terrorist operation. Now, I knew that that was a big deal outside the U.S., right? And so I, I never thought that here in the United States that was an issue. Uh, but it was an issue overseas. And, and so actually in 2012, when I started my first company and kind of got into my uh, you know service or philanthropic work, I worked with a ministry that does have safe houses overseas where they do help some of these people. But a good friend of mine, Jeff Teagues, he brought to my attention that, hey, buddy, this just isn't an issue overseas. This is actually a pretty big issue here in the United States as well. And so when I learned about how, how big of an issue it is actually here in the United States in our own backyards, in our own cities, uh, that, that kind of got me really focusing, not to, not to take anything away from doing things internationally, but I also realized we've got to do something here at home. And, and by the way, this is where my three daughters live, yeah. right? So it's, uh, it's, it's literally close to home for me. And so I've always had this thing with business in my first business. I worked my butt off like most entrepreneurs do day and night uh, before you realize that, hey, it's okay to give tasks to other people. It's okay to not be married to this business. And, you know, you get into that lifestyle business mindset in your first business. And I had to touch everything, see everything, be a part of everything. And as you get more mature and make a lot of mistakes, you realize, well, that's not necessarily the way it's got to be. And then you see these guys like Elon Musk, who is the CEO of multiple companies. You're like, there's no way that guy is doing what I did when I started my business and this successful. So he's learned he's learned the skill of tasking. He's learned the skill of hiring solid people that that can take on some of this stuff. And so I, I've always had this void in my heart with uh, in my first business. I worked so hard at the business that I got away from the service component of what I was really passionate about. And I realized very quickly that if I'm not dedicating some of my time to giving back, it I'm not going to be very good in business, and I'm not going to be very good in my business endeavors if I'm not giving back. And so. I learned that there has to be a balance between those two for me. And I'm not saying that's for everybody, but for me, I had to have both of those things, the fulfilling of those two things to, you know, to keep me going and keep me motivated and keep me driven. And so 
Yeah, so that, that's why I got into the counter-sex trafficking space here in the U.S. Um, and and I've, I'm very passionate about it, so I've learned as much as I can about it. I've built a lot of great relationships. And so the thing Skull Games to, does today is, is pretty incredible. Um, and when we actually started Skull Games, it was really small. It was relatively small. I think we had eight volunteers the first time. And uh, once the word got out uh, about our mission and what we were trying to accomplish, it, it just started to grow. So I'll kind of just give you a, a good example of what Skull Games brings to the table for law enforcement um, and, and, to, and to average people. Uh, think about it this way. So in, in, in certain cities across the country, I won't get into specific cities for obvious reasons, but well, you know, in some cities, they have major sex trafficking issues. But what you'll find is on their sex trafficking task forces or the officers assigned to investigate those cases is relatively small. Uh, for example, the NICMIC, the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, which is a well-known um, nonprofit in the counter-sex trafficking space, they receive over 30 million tips of year, 30, 30 million tips of year of children being sexually assaulted, exploited, or abused. Less than 1% of those tips are actually investigated, and a small portion of those are actually prosecuted, very small portion of that are actually prosecuted. And so what we realized in these cities, they have one or two officers assigned to these sex trafficking crimes. And so in some major cities, you know, they have hundreds of cases. Two officers, three officers are never going to get to all those cases. And so with Skull Games, what we realized is we leveraged our network to bring together, you know, former law enforcement officers, former intelligence professionals. And so for in the Skull Games task force, what we do is essentially we surge for three days, two and a half days, and we bring the resources of all of those volunteers who, by the way, the government has probably spent millions of dollars training during their time with the government or with law enforcement. We bring all of those resources or we attempt to bring all those resources to bear for a police department in, in any city in America. And so you can imagine those two officers that are just overwhelmed with these cases. All of a sudden, for three days, a team of you know, 60, 70 people show up at their doorstep and say, hey, we're here to provide you technology, uh, research, and all these other resources to help you crack some more of these cases. Um, and, and, and so that's I gotta what, say, that's I, I had the, the incredible privilege, uh, buddy, when I was working with buddy invited me to, uh, to a conference, uh, and at that conference, uh, a woman, uh, stood up at the podium and you talk about a room with hundreds of people, maybe, maybe over a thousand. Uh, and she had been uh, a victim of sexual trafficking, uh, and was rescued, uh, through the efforts of buddy and people like buddy. And, uh, and she had, he had, her life had been transformed. Uh, I believe that she was working for you at the time or may still be, uh, and it was utterly mesmerizing. I mean, the entire audience, you could hear a pin drop as this woman talked about a life of, uh, total abuse, feeling devoid of value and then being saved. And there's a saying in the Jewish tradition, which is that if you've saved a single life, it's if you've saved the world entire. I'm sorry, I get emotional every time I say that. And buddy, you are a hero because you have you've saved a lot of lives, uh, both while in service and since. Um, and um, uh, you know that's hugely humbling to to be in the presence of that. So I I just want to acknowledge that. Um, I'm going to pivot. Let's talk. Let's talk business for a minute. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, when we talked. Obviously, you and I have talked offline, but in the in the pre-interview, you you talked about 
that business for you was a series of learning and failure. Talk to our audience about about that. What 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 does it mean to you? What maybe you could share a specific setback or something you learned. Um, and what did you make of that? I mean, you're I, I would imagine doing what you did in the military and in, with the National Intelligence Agency. Um, failing is probably a thing you run into with regularity. You just can't win them all. How did you apply that to business and 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 what 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 was the what epiphany Venny did you have about either the similarities or the differences between doing it where you were doing it and doing it as an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I've had I I actually keep on my uh, iPhone I keep a list of all my mistakes and uh, if you were to, to you know, if you were to get on my phone and scroll to the bottom of those mistakes it would probably take you a good two three minutes. My phone would be completely out of memory, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, get, I'm, I'm pretty close. I, I've, I've got a lot more mistakes to make, so I'll, I'm going to catch yeah. up to you, PJ. Give me, give me a year or two. But, um, you know, when I, when I first came into business, uh, I, I knew nothing about it. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know how to set up an LLC when I started my first business. And so even that was a challenge for me uh, initially, just learning what is an LLC. And then I realized... Well, there's, you know, after I started my company, there's all these other corporations or there's all these other ways you could have set up like a C-Core and S-Core. And so every, every day I was learning something new. Um, where, where I think I was fortunate is uh, I, I, I was lucky enough to have people around me early on who acted as my mentors. Now, they didn't give me the answers to all the, te- you know, the, te- the questions on the test, but they were there for me to reach out. And, and I... I've always had a hard time asking people for help. That's one of the things I really had to get past as an entrepreneur is, um, you know, there are genuinely people out there that want to see you be successful. There are people that genuinely care about you. Um, but, but at the same time, there are genuinely people out there that see opportunity in you and aren't there to see you be successful, that they want to leverage you to further their own business goals. And so differentiating between the two is, is kind of tough when you just get into this world. Where I was lucky is I spent a lot of time and the government, or the government paid me to understand the difference between the two, uh, not in the same regard, but sort, sort of similarly. And so I, you know, I, um, I was fortunate enough to where the mistakes I made were, some of the mistakes I made were minimal. I mean, I've, I've made some big mistakes where we've spent four or $500,000 building a piece of technology that never left the shelf. Um, there were mistakes like that, but, uh, I, I, I had a friend once tell me that I was getting an education that I could not get in any classroom. He said, you could go get an MBA. You would never learn this stuff. And he said, so every mistake you make, every dollar you lose in your entrepreneurial journey, chalk that up to tuition because you're paying for an education you can't get in the classroom. Uh, so that helped, that, that helped me a little bit. But uh, you know, I, I think some of the bigger mistakes I've made is... Um, moving too fast, right? So for instance, when I sold my first company, and Tal knows this story a little bit, when I sold my first company, we were at a place where we were doing really well. Our pipeline was solid. Our P-win rate for those opportunities was was very good. And we managed to operate in a very lean manner. Um, We, you know, most people worked from home. I always paid very, very close attention to the P&L. But then we had a buyer come to us and, or reach out to us that we engaged in, uh, they were ready to buy us. So of course, for me, I looked through this through uh, colored lenses and everybody on my team was excited about it. 
So I, I sort of blew past a lot of the, the small print that I should have paid attention to when you're going through an acquisition. Um, and, and that's not that that company tried to pull one over on me. That was mostly my fault. That's on me. It's my responsibility to read those things. And so I agreed to some things that I probably wouldn't have agreed to if I would have taken the time to read the small print. But I was so excited about the fact that our company was growing. We were pivoting from services to technology, which is most people listening to this podcast know is not an easy thing to do. And so now you're going to get all these additional resources. You're going to get all this additional support to do that. My team was excited. And so the acquisition was like sort of became an afterthought before the acquisition occurred. I was so laser focused on what we're doing post-acquisition. And um, I, I, you know, I have some regrets about that. But at the same time, had I not gone through those pain, that pain and had some of that not caught up to me post-acquisition, I wouldn't have been forced to go back and really teach myself some of these things. For instance, you know, I couldn't even read a term sheet when we were first acquired. I didn't know what a, what a liquidation preference was. I didn't know what half of the terms on the sheet were. But I just thought, you know, everybody's trying to do the right thing. We're all on the same team. Uh, you know, so... So a lot of lessons learned there, um, and so I, I've and spent. I'll, and I'll, and I'll say, you know, when, when when I came into your orbit, those 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 mistakes were in your rearview mirror, and you were living with the consequences of those mistakes. I remember reviewing them with you, and I was impressed with your candor. Uh, you know, we were sitting at the table. There was another investor there. Buddy was the CEO. Very serious money is being discussed, and Buddy's very transparent about. Well, you know, I, I agreed to this, and that's been really holding me back. And and then there's this issue, and. Uh, and and I'd say two things about that uh, stood out for me. One, clearly the most important value you had was your integrity. Um, and uh, and I would say that anyone listening, that you have to start there and you probably have to end there. Um, start with your integrity, end with your integrity, everything in the middle is strategy. Uh, the second thing uh, that really stood out to me is that you were, for someone that has accomplished as much as you have and has done some amazing things, you were eager to be coached. I mean, I remember the conversations you and I had and there was no, hey, Mr. Zlotnitsky, sit back. Who the hell do you think you are? You were eager to pick my brain and get as much as you could. And I think that goes back to this concept of mentorship, which I think, as you said, is invaluable. If, if you're in a position where someone is willing to tell you or share with you things that are potentially going to help you, the best thing you could do is keep your mouth closed for a minute and listen. Uh, and I was very impressed with how well you listened. Uh, so I want to, I want to just call that out. I, well, I, I, I sorry. No, no, no. I, I was just going to say, Tal, um, just on the side note, uh, brand new t-shirt coming out. Uh, you start with integrity you end with an integrity, everything else in the middle is strategy. Uh, brilliant. Very, very nice. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> I just came up with it. Yeah, I, I know. But, I'm going to use that. That's very good. Uh, <laughs> you know, one one of my commanders that I I highly respected. He always told me, you know, never compromise your integrity. That's the only thing you can never get. You can't get back. Yep. Um, and so, Tal, I, I agree with you 100. Uh, percent And and the other part of it too, you know, for me, with when it comes to the integrity and being transparent, I've been, you know, I know that being overly transparent is a risk, right? I I know that's a risk. Uh, but you know what? I, I think the risk of not being transparent is much greater. And so, you know, I, I've always erred on the side of share as much information uh, with the people that you trust as you as you as you can, because that no people can't help you if you're not sharing that information. You you can't feed people bits of information and hope to get anything in return. 
uh, that's truly going to help you accomplish your goals. And I, I'm one of those people where my uh, my brain is. I do take a little bit of time to make decisions because my brain just sits on stuff and sits on stuff. And what I found in my entrepreneurial journey is there's somebody out there that's already been through this. There's somebody out there that's already got the answer. And so you can spend the next three days driving yourself crazy and stress levels through the roof, or you can just just ask people the question. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by people that almost always have answers to those questions. But I found that if if I don't open myself up to them, you know, it, it just makes it easier for them to open themselves up to me if I'm being the same way. Yeah. Uh, and, and and business changes so much. And you guys know this, like the tech landscape is changing every day. Uh, we've got so many things we're dealing with now with generative AI and all these different advancements. If you're not communicating and talking and being open about the things you do know and you don't know, I, I don't know how you survive in this new world of business, to be honest with you. There, there's no more building, wash, you know, designing washing machines in the back rooms at GE and hoping that when you release it in two years, it's a massive hit. You're just not going to succeed in this world that way. Yeah. And so you kind of touched on, on leveraging networks, right? Like uh, reaching out, being transparent, uh, being open and, and uh, you know, accepting mentorship or good ideas, or, or at least just, just, you know, passing advice from people that have gone through it. Is there a moment that you've had where like your network played a, cru- a crucial role in overcoming obstacles on your journey? Oh, PJ once a week. I mean, literally <laughs> once a week, I, if, if you could see my chats on my phone, uh, y- you know, um, I, you know, as you, as you, and, and you both of you know this, but as you do this longer, you get more comfortable in your decision-making. Sure. But even though I've become more comfortable in my decision-making, especially in the tech space with the new company, uh, I'll give you an example. My first company, it took me five, six months to get that thing stood up. My new company, I think we stood it up in four days. Uh, you know, so that's the learning curve, right? That's There's so many, many more things about business I'm much more confident about. But even now, even when I know that I'm, I'm pretty confident about a decision, you know, I still reach out to a handful of people to bounce it off of them. Because you just don't know. It's and it's not that it's not that I may be making the wrong decision. It also may be that that there's some things happening in the industry, or there may be some new technological advancements you're not taking into consideration. And so I, I don't think as entrepreneurs we should ever get so comfortable that we don't think we need somebody's advice or that we don't need somebody's help. Because it's impossible to have your finger on the pulse of everything that's happening in your space or in your market at any given time. And and if you fall into that trap and you become that person, uh, I I suspect you probably won't be around very long. It it brings to mind uh, a statement that uh, Blaine Bartlett, uh, a former guest uh, of ours, the number one international bestseller, uh, uh, author of uh, uh, Compassionate Capitalism. And uh, and he, he framed out for us how he felt people should go about uh, thinking through decisions and uh, uh, intersections uh, in their career or in the in the uh, in their company, and he said, "Start with for the sake of what am I doing this, uh, and then think two or three iterations forward." Um, and you know, when I came into your orbit, I, I was brought in by an investor who was looking at investing in your company. He'd given me all the documents of that previous transactions. I didn't know you. I came into the meeting having reviewed it and having found all these things that were very problematic in it. And I wasn't sure what kind of a CEO would be sitting across from me. Uh, PJ, I didn't have to point out any of them because Buddy pointed them out in the room. Uh, He didn't wait for me, the consultant, to say, 
well, there's this and there's that and then there's this. He said, let me tell you essentially where the grenade, where the, where the, uh, you know, where the problems are. Um, and that mindset, that approach, uh, I, 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 I find that incredibly disarming. Um, and it raises my level of confidence and trust in a person that's sitting across from me a hundredfold. Oh yeah. Immediately. If someone, if someone's accountable, right, they're, they're taking accountability for whatever and, uh, um, doing it in an honest way, it takes away any of the potential gotcha moments and it just makes it a level playing field. Let's are great. Here's the foundation. Let's build from there. Well, and you know, what's interesting about that is, uh, because I, I pointed some of those things out to Tal, he was able to jump to the things that I wasn't aware of or to provide some additional substance in the areas that I didn't have a depth of knowledge. And so it actually maximized our time together, I think. And it, it, instead of, you know, so, and, and you know, as an entrepreneur, and, and part of that, I'd be lying if I didn't say this as an entrepreneur, right? It's, it's like your legal team. The more time they spend talking with you, the more money you're spending, right? So the part of it is, you know, uh, if I can explain to you what I think the problem is and where I think the issues are, well, then what your expertise is, you can come in and help me with the areas where I'm not as smart or maybe see some things I'm just not seeing. And uh, so I, I think, I mean, Tal, I remember at the end of that, not at the end of the conversation, as I started kind of pointing things out, you started expanding on some of those and brought some things to light that, you know, I hadn't even considered. And so it was, it was a very beneficial conversation uh, for me in that regard. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And uh, it was, it, you know, I, I it, it's, and it started a friendship, which uh, I'm even uh, prouder of. Let's, let's, uh, let's switch gears. I, I want to talk about uh, your current venture, Indago. Um, your, you have this vision, and I, I, and, and I think for the sake of our audience, it might be useful to understand what is open source uh, human intelligence. So maybe you can define that a little bit. Um, but open source human intelligence is 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 out there. Uh, I think we're all aware of uh, the fact that you know uh, the internet pertains almost everything, and there's also something called the dark internet or the dark web, uh, where even more information exists. Help people understand what it is that you know. Where where is this data, this deep web uh, well rather of data that folks like you can leverage for the benefit of law enforcement and business in ways that, you know, maybe people that don't have your background and don't quite understand what you understand uh, wouldn't be able to do? Uh, it's a very, it's a really good question. So the, there, there, oh, there's open source intelligence and, and that's a government term. The government uses that word. Most people in the private sector really don't know what that is. But if I were explaining it to somebody in a private sector, it, it's basically whatever you can search for on Google. It's publicly available data. That's basically it. Um, um, now, there's different levels of the internet. There's the surface web, which are things that when you put in a search in Google and it pops up, that's considered essentially the surface web. Now, I, I've, I've taught classes on this for weeks. So uh, to some of your listeners who are savvy OSINTers, they're going to say, well, that's not exactly what it is. So just know I'm speaking at a very macro level here. Um, so there's what you search for on the internet that's considered publicly available data. That's mostly in the OSINT space. Then there's also this dark web. And the dark web is essentially where you use like a Tor browser to access a marketplace or marketplaces <clears throat> that require anonymization to access those. That's where the dark web is. And the dark web, you know, you hear the horror stories. That's where, you know, drugs are sold, guns are sold, kids are sold, all these different things. 
Um, it's certainly not as sexy, I think, as sexy as I think most people believe it is or lead other people to believe. But what I tell people is think about this. When you go to a website on the internet, the surface internet, it's beautiful. It's shiny. They're tracking your clicks. They're tracking everything you're looking at. Uh, so there's a lot of back end to that website. Well, in the dark web, think about it as like a flea market in a third world country. They set them up for two or three days to sell a few drugs or sell a few guns, and then they tear them down. And then they move on. So those websites are not nearly as sexy. And they can't be up for too long because if they do, law enforcement will probably find out who they are. So that's the two separate pieces of data. They're the surface web and the dark web. Um, and so with the, you know, with the advancement of the internet and fiber optic cable and all this data that's on the internet, there's a lot of statistics out there about this stuff. But the bottom line is we've just got access to so much data now on the internet. It creates a lot of ethical issues and privacy concerns, right? Because how people are accessing this data. And so it's, there's a minefield there when you're in the open source intelligence space and in, in collecting that data. But, um, but yeah, so, so people are realizing, businesses are realizing that uh, the data that's available on the internet, whether it harms your business, helps your business, um, is, is extremely important. So OSINT as a discipline is growing. Now, I will tell you, our new business isn't in the OSINT space anymore. We, you, we do leverage publicly available data uh, but you know, I, somebody could argue that you know, if you do a Google search using uh, Google operators or dorks, what the OSINT community refers to, well, you're doing OSINT. Well, then that means basically everybody in America is in the OSINT business, uh, which are I don't know about that, but I'm definitely a dork. Uh, yeah, I may dork. Or not be the OSINT. <laughs> now, now I, I, I found my tribe. There you go. There you go. There's a ton of classes out there, a lot of free classes too on how to become uh, an OSINTer. But dork. you know, there's not much you can't. Yeah, exactly. There's not much I, you can't. I already, find I, you know what? I had that covered at 12 years old. Yeah, I was going to say it comes naturally to me. Yeah. Cool. You know, it's interesting. It actually, it does. It what I'm finding um, in the in the in the world of intelligence, especially OSINT, this thing comes. You know, it comes easier to younger generations. I mean. The, the the average child or the average kid now is being exposed to more data in three days on this device, you know, their devices, than an adult in their entire lifetime prior to 1970. So think about what that's doing to their brains. Jeez. Wow. Um, well, I so, just yeah, want to be clear that I, I was not claiming uh, at, when I was uh, laying stake to the word dork, I didn't mean that I had those things covered. I, I just meant literally dork. Um, <laughs> Think of yeah. high school. And dork. I think PJ, you're right there, right? Oh, there. Yeah, okay. totally, I was just totally. making sure. I think you we were both I'd... seeing we were seeing eye to eye, but I think I think Buddy assumed we meant that we had some advanced this is, capabilities. This is what happens when you come uh, which, from a which place of we, intelligence. Which we do not do yes. not have. For the record, we we do not. No, um, I'm a anyway, go on, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, so the so the new business, uh <laughs> well, I, no, I you gave me an idea. I was just reading this morning that uh one of uh, Elon Musk's company is now implanting smart devices inside the body, implantable devices. So maybe you could, maybe you could get one of those implanted and you get those dork-like skills. Mm. That, that would make you a full dork, I guess, uh, <laughs> complete dork. Mm. <laughs> but uh, that was a bad, that was a dad joke. No, I like that. That's another shirt. Yep. I'm, I'm a complete dork, but, but in a good way. Full yeah, circle. Like small print. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the new company, uh, the way we've built it is one of my other passions is information disorder. Um, and, you know, under that is disinformation and misinformation. And I strongly believe that uh, the faster that we can get the truth to people, truth to government officials, truth to decision makers, the less of a gap that our adversaries have to take advantage of our society. Um, 
And so with our new technology, it really sets out to do two things. One, it significantly decreases the amount of time it takes somebody to write a report, whether that's an intelligence professional or a paralegal at a law firm. It decreases that time significantly. Right now, the average analyst is spending over six hours right, just writing and generating reports. We want to get that down to under an hour. Secondly, we're leveraging and building secure communications to language models to significantly enhance the quality of the report writing. When I was in the, in the government, we always had this saying that if, if it's not written down in a report, it never happened, which is true. But I also believe that even if it was written down and the, the writing sucked or you didn't get the executive's attention in the executive summary, you've wasted a lot of your time because it really doesn't matter what you did. And so we have this real challenge, I think, in both the government and the private sector where writing reports is becoming more difficult because we have so much more data to access, but the quality of those reports are deteriorating because we have so much data. And so our platform sets out to decrease the amount of time they write reports while significantly increasing the quality. We're actually creating a patent, uh, we're patenting a readability score where people that use our platform, like Grammarly sort of does with grammar checks, it tells you your Grammarly score is X. We're, we're trying to build the same thing with readability. Uh, and so on our platform, we're leveraging generative AI and multiple secure communication, secure connections to language models to increase uh, the, the user's ability to write a report that people are actually going to read and pay attention to. Um, so, yeah, so that that's my second passion. The uh, you, you know, if you go back to, you know, even the Roman Empire, the thing that destroyed these great nations wasn't, you know, in most cases, wasn't going to war with a foreign nation. It was. It was this, the fabric of their society started to deteriorate and echo chambers were born. Now we have this thing called social media that's made that a lot easier. And so our hope with our platform is that we can put tools into the hands of people that can make decisions a lot, faster. A lot easier for people seeking to pass misinformation, a lot harder for those trying to slow their uh, spread and, and combat them. But I assume that's what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, um, <clears throat> I could give a bunch of examples, but when an event happens here in the U.S. now or a major protest occurs, our adversaries are on those events very, very quickly and spreading rumors and and even buying ads to amplify those to people that are most likely going to listen to and amplify those messages. And so, you know, if if we can create a piece of technology that puts truth into the hands of not just the average American, but decision makers. And we close that gap where our adversary has time to operate. Uh, I believe that the long-term impact could be significant because, you know, the American experiment, so to speak, it's, you know, I mean, I think it's most people believe this. Uh, I know I do that the United States isn't going to deteriorate or collapse because we lose a war. It's going to collapse and deteriorate because Americans lose their sense of purpose and sense of community. Mm -hmm. And the two things that really hit at both of those is disinformation. And so we're trying to... S some would say that. that that is already well, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in motion, if not uh, approaching a potential point of no return. Uh, and and I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, well, first, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that that history is, uh, history does repeat itself. And it's, it's, Time and again, we've seen great societies fail, and it's almost always an inside job. Uh, and what's very disconcerting to me 
as someone that loves this country, which is not my uh, country of birth, but it is my home, and I consider myself an American, um, is that there are a lot of Americans that are cynical enough to know better, but willing to push buttons, the impact of which on this great country uh, is either predictably bad or uncertain. And as I see that happen, whether it's people in media, people in politics, we don't need to name any names. I think many people in the audience will, will draw their own conclusions. It is capitalizing on a human frailty, which is our tendency to look for simple answers and simple explanations for very complex issues. Unfortunately, most people would rather believe a conspiracy theory than sit down and hear the four uh, bullet point explanation with the 16 sub bullet points that will actually help them understand what's going on. How do you deal in, in this world we're in? I mean, look, reality is we are where we are. It's going to get in many ways harder with generative AI. It's going to become easier for people who seek to spread misinformation to do so. And with some of the generative AI uh, and AI around imagery, it's going to become easier to manipulate images and create even greater yeah, challenges absolutely. and conspiracies. How do you not, I mean, you seem to me to still be an optimist. Maybe I'm misreading that. How do you retain your optimism in the face of this onslaught of, um, I don't know, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, just Let's just call it an onslaught, uh, which is how I often feel. I, 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 I consume a lot less news than I used to because it became entirely overwhelming. And it's not clear to me how we as a society deal with that. Thank God for people like you um, who are not deterred, I believe. Um, but tell me, how do you, if you do retain your optimism, how do you do that on a what basis? So it's a great question. I'm actually very optimistic. Uh, and I, I believe that it starts in the classroom. One of, one of the areas that I've been having a lot of conversations about, one of the topics I've been having a lot of conversations about, is how do we get media literacy into the classroom? How do we get critical thinking back into the classroom. Because I think we're dealing with a generation now, uh, a few generations actually, where we've had this explosion of technological advancements, like, you know, Moore's Law, for example. I mean, the computer chip has expanded so quickly that people at our age, I'm speaking for myself, but I think people can relate to this. We don't know how to deal with this expansion of information and all this excessive data that we now have access to. I'll give you an example. I tell people this jokingly, but it's true. I remember being a teenager and for the first time, my mom telling uh, us kids, hey, there was a kid that was kidnapped in San Francisco. I forget the exact city, but there was a kid kidnapped in San Francisco. You guys need to be in before the sun goes down tonight. Well, we were living in Philadelphia and it immediately registered in my brain like, mom, this has been going on forever. You just didn't have national news on the TV screen three days ago, Right. And so I think what has happened is because of things like the Crisis News Network, that we all now, uh, all of the worst things happening in the world are sitting on the TV screen in front of us. And our brains, you know, we're human beings. We move towards conflict and away from peace. That's just naturally how we're wired through evolution, right? So I think we put too much bad news in front of people, but we haven't given them the skills 
to critically think through and vet that information on their own. It's way too easy to just, hey, I like this guy. I believe what he's saying. Therefore, that must be the so I agree so with I'm all of that. In, the, in light of that, where's the optimism? Where does the optimism fit in? We, we got to fix the education system, right? I, I believe that kids nowadays, and I know a lot of parents say, parent, kids being on TikTok, Facebook, it's all bad. It, it is bad in a lot of different ways, especially when it comes to the exploitation of children. I'm 100% agreeing with that. But I also think because kids are being exposed to so much data now, that they're developing these skills to vet this data faster than we could, or we had, or we don't have the skills to do that. But you know, even talking to my daughters, they can tell me very quickly that post is crap, that post is legitimate, this is stupid. So that that filter that they're developing to see what's true and what's not true, I think is is increasingly improving. Whereas we, I didn't grow up on an iPhone, so I'm trying to learn these skills at 40 years old. Whereas you know, kids are learning this stuff at 12 and 13, and so. That, that's that's where my optimism lies. And I also, I do I do believe that uh, here in America and in our friendly countries that we work closely with, um, I believe that we have systems and governments in place, while not perfect, that will solve these problems. They, they, it's going to take some time. It's not going to happen overnight. But I do think if enough people start talking about it, and I think they are, that we'll, fi- we'll figure, we'll come up with solutions. Because at the end of the day, um, we... You know, we we don't want America to collapse. We we don't want to see that. And there are cynical people out there, but I think uh, those cynical people will be overshadowed by the people that um, that have these critical thinking skills. But I, like I said, I, I think I think it's got to get back to the classroom. Or I mean, you guys see this all the time. Homeschooling is on the rise. I mean, here in Florida, I mean, every couple, I, I'd say, you know, not empirical data here by any means, but. You know, every two or three out of five kids I know are now being homeschooled. And so, you know, parents are parents are bringing kids back into the home to not make them susceptible to some of these things. And so we'll, we'll see where it goes. But I, I do think it starts in the classroom and critical. Thinking. Well, it's, so, it sounds like your optimism. First of all, I think statistically, I, I'm, I'm certain that, that that number wouldn't hold. I don't think it's two to three out of five, but uh, maybe two to three out of 100. And maybe that number is oh, rising. Sorry, I don't yeah. know. Um but I, I would say that if I if I'm hearing you correctly, your optimism is rooted in a generation that's coming that is more savvy uh, with technology uh, and better uh, perhaps than we are at uh, breaking down uh, whether something is logical and can be true or isn't. Uh, and you know, as a father to three uh, adults, uh, my youngest is twenty. I concur. I do think that the generation to come uh, and the generation that's rising is on many levels superior to us. I think I, you know it's interesting because usually, gener- you know, uh, it's it's more of a more common for uh, historically for people to to lament the coming generation. I think the generation to come will save us. The question is, what will be what will we be leaving them? Uh, I mean, you said, and I, I agree. That uh, you know, we need government. Uh, let's talk about AI. Uh, you know, I'm a co-signer to a letter uh, that was circulated uh, uh, a few months ago, and is actually a new letter that's being circulated by the group uh, today, uh, calling on all involved parties, government, business, uh, academia, to get together and regulate generative AI before it transforms our society in ways we simply cannot predict. And uh, I'm going to get off my soapbox because people are not here to hear me. They'd rather hear you. 
but but I would say that it it, it is unfortunate that one of the legacies of uh, what we've seen happen through media manipulation and and other uh, unfortunate things over the last twenty or so years is there's been a massive erosion in confidence in government, which ultimately ultimately um, could come back and bite us in the ass. I mean, if we if 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 we can't find a way to get people to believe that uh, at its core, government is made up of what? It's made up of people. It's made up of Americans like you and me who go to work every day at agencies, thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of them. And their mission is not to assist some conspiracy. It's to serve America and serve our, serve our, our, uh, serve our values. Um, and, and the sooner we get back to a place where we remember that, the, the, the more odds of surviving this very uncomfortable time in our history uh, are. And you know what? I am an optimist, and yet I'm deeply worried. Uh, and I'm grateful that there are people like you that are uh, working uh, to put the right tools in the hands of people that um, need those tools in order to protect us. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting conversation because there's so many aspects to the conversation, right? So like advancements in the, in healthcare because of generative AI are astounding. Uh, you know, uh, advancements um, to safety are incredible. I, I just saw a statistic the other day that uh, self-driving cars are now safer, that they just crossed that threshold where self-driving cars are now safer than cars being driven by humans. That's incredible. The, the other thing is they, they've just started merging supercomputers with generative AI and what they're learning so quickly, they can't get it out fast enough. And so, you know, in terms of longevity, in terms of personal safety, I think GAI is doing some incredible things. Um, but you're right when it comes to, you know, the manipulation of generative AI, that's a, that's a gray area. And the, the, the problem for the U.S. government, I think, at a high level, and we could get really deep into this, but at a high level is I agree that we need to regulate it. Um, that's going to take time. Um, I don't necessarily agree that we need to slow down because, you know, when, when Sam Altman released OpenAI, which is, you know, was a nonprofit that is now becoming a for-profit, which I, I'm not sure how that happens, but um, once that becomes a for-profit, God only knows who's going to have access to this stuff. Uh but you know our adversaries aren't slowing down, and so that that's that's a that's a conundrum that the U.S. government is now in. We can slow it down, we can regulate it in America, but we can't regulate it in some of these other countries. And because we don't know the risk uh, that's involved, and we don't, you know, I don't believe that, um, you know, uh, generative AI anytime soon is going to become a, a, its own being, a, uh, you know, a sapient creature that's going to make its own decisions. But but I don't but I don't know that for well, sure. You, you don't, don't need sentience. I mean, I, I I agree with you, and and uh, you know we're we're going to get back on the topic of business, and I, I hope we haven't lost our our audience in its entirety, and hopefully it's it's, yeah. it's uh, interesting. What do you think, PJ? Are we is this an interesting conversation? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're well, yes, we're we'll close with business, of course. But I mean, okay, it's it's all it, look, it's all relative, right? We all we all have 
we all have wants and, and desires for our society to be better and act better. There's, there's a specter of AI. A lot of us don't understand it. Um, there's, there's tons of, of uh, statistics out there that are great and some are terrible. So it, it is interesting to, to go over it and, you know, and I'll, and I'll say uh, proof of concept. I know for a fact that uh, the generative AI probably is better. Those self-driving cars are probably better because I got teenagers and, um, I, I guarantee you it's better. So there's, I think it's, I think it's an interesting conversation for sure. It, I think that we could probably spend a Joe Rogan type <laughs> length yeah. of mm-hmm. conversation on all of this because there's a lot to unhatch, but um, there is. I, I do think it's, well, I think it's important. I, I'll finish with them. one quick thought and then, then we could pivot back and, and then, you know, we'll, we'll close with our traditional last question. Um, I would just say that there's no doubt that uh, AI, generative AI and all AI uh, has the potential to change the world in deeply positive and meaningful ways. Absolutely. The amount of data that can be uh, uh, reviewed uh, for the benefit of science in particular is unbelievable. I also believe that uh, we have in the world have shown the ability to come together globally, as we just did on some level with COVID uh, and previously, and I know vaccination, unfortunately, for reasons I don't understand, is a controversial topic, but we've come together globally to eradicate uh, disease by enacting certain protocols. And I think AI is one of these moments in history, uh, generative AI, not AI in general, generative AI. And if you don't know what it is, uh, you know, go to OpenAI. I think it's OpenAI.com now. I don't think it's .org anymore. Um, and and kick the tires on ChatGPT, and and you'll be. Literally ask it any question. I'm not talking one question. Ask it a 10-dimensional question uh, that involves information that perhaps you've spent your entire life learning and watch with amazement as it gives you uh, oftentimes stunningly detailed and generally speaking, very accurate information. Yes, there are some uh, hallucinations, but uh, I, I would just say, uh, you know, in closing there, it, it it is going to become increasingly harder for good guys like you to protect us and, and, and ensure our continuance as a civilization if we don't take some measures. Um, and I think the timeline, to, the time to take those measures is now. Uh, and I'm talking, when I say now, I mean, we basically maybe have an 18 to 24 month window before this genie can never get back in the bottle. And it behooves us to be very mindful uh, of, of that. Um, PJ, I'll kick it back to you to, to take us back to business. Oh, geez. Thanks, man. <laughs> Fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so just really quickly, clearly you have um, – there, there's, a, there's a couple of cores to you, right? I, I mentioned you have a huge heart, um, which is – apparent you have uh you have the moniker of of integrity that you you carry around around with you you also clearly have a strong moral compass um have you navigated any ethical considerations on the entrepreneurial side that have influenced or how have they influenced your your business decisions using that compass so i always um it's a great question. Um, I, I actually have a mentor who I, I, it's funny you use the term moral compass. Uh, I tell him all the time, like he is my moral compass. Every time I, I even start to think about things that I think uh, violate my integrity. He's the first person I call him. We've had hours long conversations about, you know, decisions I was planning to make 
And he, he does a very good job of sort of explaining to me why those are not good decisions or, or why that could compromise my integrity or not have the lasting impact. And I think most times when people compromise their integrity, it's for short gains. And they're, what they're risking is the long-term effects of maintaining your integrity. Um, and so, you know, I, I can't think, I, I don't think I personally, I've done anything to, you know, when it comes to like m- making day-to-day decisions, what I try to stick to is the team. Uh, you know, because if, if if I wind up selling a couple of businesses and becoming very rich, well, if I'm by myself on a hill with all that money, what does it matter? Right. That's not why I got into this. My, my, I've, I've built a great team. I've got an incredible team of investors. I've got a great board and I've got some good people around me. And so, you know, I, the decisions I make, it's for them. And I do think through that all the time. And I, I do that exercise in my brain. If I make this decision, you know, how does it affect my COO? How does it affect my director of marketing? How does this affect my board? How does this affect my vector, investors? And I realize that not every decision is going to make everybody happy. You, there's, there, there's something, you know, you've got to, um, you got to take some risk there. But uh, I, I think I've been pretty, pretty fortunate in the fact that I've, I've, I've never made a decision that really hurt the people that I cared about or the people that were helping me grow my business. I'm not saying I won't down the road. And of course, you know, I've not owned or run big businesses. Uh, the most employees we've had is probably, you know, just around 35, 40. Uh, so that's a relatively small, that's a, company. that's a big business. That's, I mean, I know, yeah. in the, you know, it's, it's not a large business in, in the, in the definitional sense, but, uh, yeah. that's a lot more people than, than many people have. Yeah. Have, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a lot of people's livelihood that, that you're responsible for. Well, I, I guess what the, <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, I guess what yeah. does make me nervous is when you look at, you know, these CEOs of thousand person companies. I mean, I I'm always hesitant when people say this CEO is a bad CEO. And I'm thinking like, do you realize how many decisions that person has to make? And do you think they have the time to sit around and think about all 32,000 employees perspective of his decision, you know? And so I guess what I'm saying is it's been manageable where I've been. Uh, it's certainly not manageable when you get to those levels. And so um, that, that makes me Fair a little enough. nervous. Can, can I'm going to steal. I, I'm, go ahead, PJ. Sorry. I was, one real quick thing. Um, we don't know each other very well, buddy. Uh, but I will say if you ever find yourself down and you're feeling downtrodden and you just have this large amount of money that you don't know what to do with, please call me and I'll be happy. He's to. very good. At, he's taking be, money off of every guest. I, I I mean, we had a guest happy, yesterday happy who sold help. the company for $500 million and PJ shamelessly said he'll take $499 million of that. No, no, no. I was just going to borrow that. And me being the modest guy, I am, I said, I'll take the other million. <laughs> you see, I'm, I'm so reasonable. True. True. Story. Um, yeah. <laughs> B- buddy, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll steal. It's usually PJ that asked this last question, but, but, uh, since we're running out of time, I, I will go ahead and do that. Uh, with all of your experiences, everything you've learned, everything you've done in your incredible and very interesting career, if you could offer one piece of advice, one thing, you know, we've had some guests that have insisted on making it three, but I'd really rather it was one, <laughs> one piece of advice you'd give our listeners. They are budding entrepreneurs, or maybe they're, uh, thinking about becoming an entrepreneur. What would be the one piece of advice that maybe you wish someone had told you about or that you think they should start from? Yeah. I, you know, I, we, we live in America, right? And not just America, 
there's a lot of other countries that are doing very well economically. About a third of our audience, actually, for the record, about a third of our audience is outside of America. We've got we've got a, got a big following in Europe, surprisingly, yeah. especially in the UK. But nevertheless, continue. <laughs> yeah. <your point>. So, <laughs> so no, my my advice would be to just go for it. Like we we live we live in a time of abundance. We live in a time where there are so many programs to help you if you make a mistake. You know, one of my one of my mentors uh, who I love and value. Uh, He's beat cancer five times, just an incredible human being. He always told me one of the most incredible things our forefathers did is they created bankruptcy, right? And the reason they created bankruptcy is because if you are ethical and you do the right thing and you make a mistake, we've we've gotten away from debtor's prison. We've created this mechanism to help you get back on your feet. So you get that second, that third, that fourth chance. Now, clearly people weaponize bankruptcy, and I'm not talking about people that intentionally do those things. But what I'm saying is if you live in, you know, in, in the United States or one of these countries, just go for it. I promise you in the long term, you will be grateful. Even if you have to go back to your desk job, you will be so much more experienced and have so much more knowledge about how business works. I'll share this last thing with you real quick. I think it's kind of important. In 2000, just before 2011, uh, uh, 9-11, um, I was working at the Pentagon. And I would brief, I, I didn't brief a lot. I don't want to give anybody the impression like these are one-on-one briefs, but I attended a brief with Secretary Rumsfeld at the time. And every now and then I would have to get up and speak to a specific topic. And it was generally like five or six seconds. So it wasn't a big deal. But I was sitting next to him one day and I asked him, and at the time I was a contractor and I asked him, I said, Hey, sir, how do you become the Secretary of Defense? And uh, I thought his answer was incredible. He said, if you want to be the Secretary of Defense, you've got to get away from the government. You've got to get other experience. You're not going to become Secretary of Defense by working your way up as a government civilian or being in the military. Now, uh, that's changed, obviously. We've had General Mattis in office, and he kind of did it that way. But and General Austin now. Yeah. General Austin now. Your point's well taken. But the yeah. point was, he said, if you really... Yeah. And I said, I want to be SecDef, right? What else do you say to the SecDef? I want your job in 20 years. And, <laughs> He said, buddy, if you want to do that, you need to get away from the government. You need to understand business. You need to start a business. You need more worldly experience to do this job effectively. And so, you know, that stuck with me. And so that's that's why I tell people, even if you fail miserably over the next three years building a business, go for it. Because the knowledge you're going to gain in doing so is going to make you so much better at whatever it is you do decide to do if you get if you if you give up on the entrepreneurial journey. So I, I mean, we have a very short time on this earth very short time. What better thing, you know, what better risk to take than going out and starting a business? Uh, to me, it's just an incredible opportunity. That, and by the way, we have the ability to do this. There are so many people in the world that they can't even fathom the idea of starting a business because the infrastructure is not there. The economy is not there, the government. So we, this is a real blessing to live in a place where you can go take risks, start a business, lose almost everything and still get back on your feet. Um, well, with, without a doubt, and your your optimism oozes, and I mean that in a positive sense, out of you, which is great. And I, I, I want to be clear, I'm an optimist as well. I actually do believe that enough people of goodwill and good character and um, uh, high morals will come together uh, and are coming together uh, to to lead us to a, a better tomorrow. Uh, I, I, if I have the opportunity to be involved, I try to be. And I encourage everyone that's in the audience to do the good work folks like Buddy do 
take an op, take, take uh, whatever it is, wherever it is in, in, in your world that you can make an impact. It doesn't have to be sex traffickers, uh, make that impact. Uh, and, uh, I, and I, it's another t-shirt, I think just go for it. I know it sounds a little like just do it, I, but it's not, it's just go for it. And, and I think that that's, that's well said. I mean, ultimately the biggest barrier to success for a lot of people is their own self-confidence and their ability to just press on, uh, Absolutely. in the face of adversity. And this, this podcast is entirely about perseverance and resilience. Uh, there isn't one person on this planet, uh, that has done something worthwhile that didn't in the process of getting there, run into obstacle after obstacle. And the only difference between them and the people that made that attempt that didn't quite get to that mountaintop is that they didn't quit. Yeah, Tom, and I'd just like to say, if you're an entrepreneur out there and you're facing challenges, I promise you, you're not the first one to face that challenge. So don't bring that stuff inside. Build a network, maintain your integrity. There is somebody in your network, I promise you. And if not, give me a call, email me, I'll connect you with somebody. But I promise you, there's somebody out there that has dealt with the problem that you think is going to destroy your business or going to slow you down. That's the beauty of this. You don't have to do it alone. And so those networks of mentors are so, so important. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Our guest today was an incredible guy, Buddy Jericho. Uh, Sounds like G.I. Joe. He's a bit of an action hero to me. Um, And uh, Buddy, it's been a a true honor, privilege. It's an honor and a privilege to be your friend. Uh, I value that more than I value um, uh, your business acumen because I value as a human being. Uh, but I think that you shared a tremendous amount of wisdom that will uh, benefit people's lives. And of course, uh, since they came on to hear about how to benefit their business and how to grow as entrepreneurs, that as well. So I thank you for being with us today. Um, and we look forward to hearing more about this journey with Indago. I think uh, I, I know that things are going well. I know that uh, you know, you're beginning to, 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 to get some traction and getting, getting some great investors. And uh, I look forward to, to watching you on this journey which I'm sure will be successful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tal. Yeah, thank you, PJ. Thank you, Tal. I appreciate your friendship as well. I appreciate you guys. And uh, I, I really, really appreciate the opportunity to be on here and share my story. So thank you for that. And that's a wrap, folks. Like what you heard and want to support the show? Please follow our page on LinkedIn and Facebook. Visit us on YouTube. And please like and rate us on all of your favorite podcast streaming services. You can also see exclusive content, Subscribe for free to our weekly blog, support our sponsors, and soon buy our merchandise at www.bravingbusiness.com. Thanks for being a part of our production, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast. 